Welcome to This Week in Legal Blogging for December 10th, 2020, in which we talk with leading bloggers from across the legal industry. My name is Bob Ambrogi. I write the blog Law Sites and have the podcast Law Next, both focused on tech and innovation in law. Uh, this program is presented by LexBlog, providing lawyers with turnkey digital publishing solutions and strategic consulting for 16 years. Find out all about it at lexblog.com slash products. And uh, all of our interviews, I've got a couple of dozen of them now with, with leading bloggers, uh, are available on YouTube at youtube.com slash lexblog. We are also available as a podcast at Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. And uh, today I'm very happy to have uh, as our guest Rebecca Tushnet, who is uh, – the inaugural Frank Stanton Professor of the First Amendment at Harvard Law School and a director of the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society. Uh, that's all well and good, but we're, she's here today with us because she writes she writes a blog. She writes the blog, the 43 blog or 43 paren B. Good to see you. And uh, I, uh, I, I, as, as I said before we were uh, before we actually started recording, I wasn't sure whether to call it the 40. It's 43 Paren B log, uh, which I assume is a reference to the Lanham Act. Is that where we get the yes. 43? Or <laughs> yes, and in fact, uh, so uh, geekily, um, right? It really should be 43 A one B, but nobody right. wants that. Um, so I figured that 43 B would be close enough. Yeah, I, yeah, and I was just thinking, wait, wait, 43B isn't exactly the right reference, is it? But yeah. okay, that's that's geekily. But anyway, uh, so before we talk about your blog, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself, what your what your focus is, and what your uh, what you teach at Harvard? So um, I uh, specialize in intellectual property. Um, so I uh, have been doing that um, throughout throughout my career. Um, I've moved. Uh, for, through a couple of law schools, um, but now I teach trademark uh, advertising law and copyright law uh, with occasional first-year property law, um, and I blog about um, trademark, copyright, and false advertising uh, with a special focus on false advertising uh, because uh, there isn't as much out there uh, for for false advertising, especially for a sort of comprehensive approach that deals with both consumer protection and competitor versus competitor actions. So uh, I, I've always been very interested in the latter and also interested in integrating the law of uh, consumer protection actions uh, versus competitor versus competitor actions, because courts often treat those differently, even though the basic idea is pretty much the same. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh Yet, yet, interestingly, one of the uh, notes on your bio at, uh, at Harvard uh, is that you are also an expert on the law of engagement rings. Can you explain that? Yeah. Um, so the, uh, this just comes out of um, the first my student note, actually, which was about uh, what happens to the engagement ring after the engagement is broken before marriage um, and what I discovered uh, was perhaps not surprisingly, um, there's this big history of sexism behind the uh, almost universal U.S. rule that the guy always gets it back no matter what he did or no matter why the engagement was broken, even though um, you cannot recover for 
uh, basically the lost uh, the uh, the lost costs of setting up the wedding, even though they are traditionally borne uh, by the bride side of the family. So the losses basically fall very disproportionately. Um, and my note was about that. Uh, there's there is no personal story about it, but um, <laughs> I do like it as a topic uh, because you know everyone, lawyer or not, has very strong intuitions about it, and it's a really useful way of getting into uh, thinking about what law is good at doing, right, uh, and uh, why you might attribute fault in ordinary life but not be willing to attribute fault uh, uh, and not willing to have the courts judge matters of fault. Yeah, that's really interesting. I bet, I, I don't know if that's online anywhere, but if it is, I'm sure it gets, I'm sure it's real, it's got uh, real Google juice going for it and probably gets lots of hits on it. Um, uh, you're also uh, known uh, for your, your your scholarship and your work around uh, fan fiction issues and copyright and fan fiction issues. How did you get interested in, in that? So I've actually been a science fiction and fantasy fan all my life. Um, as a friend of mine says, you know, I invented fan fiction uh, in my room. You know, I, 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 I made it up. I discovered it myself. Uh, and it turns out other people were doing it, too. Um, and I had known about uh, these fan practices, fan art, fan, fan fiction, um, which used to be distributed physically um, as really their only means of distribution, um, but jumped online basically as soon as it was uh, technically possible uh, to do so. And when I was in law school, I rediscovered these things and I was in law school. So I started asking, well, is this legal? Uh, and uh, I actually never really looked back. I fell in love with intellectual property um, and you know, switched my focus and uh, everything I did you know, sprang from there. And I was fortunate enough to be involved with uh, the founding of a nonprofit, the Organization for Transformative Works, um, which, uh, whose mission is to preserve and protect non-commercial fan cultures. Uh, and so I'm still pretty involved in that. Yeah, and, and how have we been doing on that front? I mean, how um, uh, evolved is the law around protecting fan fiction, or how onerous is the law around fan fiction? So you, the good news is there's basically a big cultural shift, uh, and uh, copyright owners now understand uh, that it's you know, neither a good idea nor uh, it nor something that they have a high chance of prevailing on to challenge uh, fan works, uh, non-commercial fan works uh, legally. And the Copyright Office um, has actually found that uh, fan videos, at least uh, at least fan videos that, that we've showed them, um, are likely to be found uh, to be f fair use uh, as part of the 1201 exemption proceedings for uh, the technical anti-circumvention law that's sort of a para-copyright para law where the Copyright Office has some authority to do some rulemaking. And so uh, while there's very limited precedent, uh, I think the limited precedent is basically a sign of success that people um, are not, uh, that it's so obvious that you shouldn't sue over this, uh, that, uh, and, and uh, and I think that's important because there was, you know, when the, especially when the internet got, uh, got going kind of commercially, uh, there was a lot of uncertainty about exactly what would go on. Yep. 
So you have been writing your blog for a long time. You've been writing your blog since September 2003. Uh, and uh, uh, I... Uh, you're you're uh, even still publishing it on Blogspot, which which tells you it's been around for a while because everybody published on Blogspot back back then. But uh, it's it's rare to find people publishing uh, on that now. But I, I'm wondering, where, you know, how do you get started with blogging? What what were you doing at that point in your career, and what interested you about that medium? Uh, so if I uh, if I can even remember that far back, um, <laughs> you can, you which can. isn't clear. Obviously, the, my subject matter is um, really aligned with new technologies. A lot of the interesting legal issues uh, involve new technologies. And so, um, you know, I heard about it, blogging and uh, decided, well, I'll just try this thing out. Um, I didn't really get rolling into until two years later um, in 2005. And uh, uh, what happened was uh, my son was born and I ha started to have these uh, chunks of time where I could work, where, you know, it was not really conceivable to do, you know, eight hours of work straight, but it was perfectly conceivable to do 40 minutes of work. And uh, uh, relatedly, you know, I'm very interested in promoting the idea of advertising law as something that people should routinely study. Uh, advertising law covers, uh, basically everyone, even if you're a nonprofit, advertising law is going to govern some of the stuff that you do. Um, and every law school in the country teaches securities law, but not every law school in the country teaches advertising law. I think this is a total mistake. So there's a huge demand for it, right? There's a lot of regulation. There's all sorts of uh, potential actors involved. So, you know, there's consumer lawsuits, there's your competitors, there's government regulators. Um, there's not just basic truthfulness, but there's all sorts of intellectual property and other uh, things that you need to know to do advertising right. So, um, the, I, I, I stepped up the blog as an idea that I would uh, cover recent developments, right, recently decided cases that I found interesting and kind of try and build up um, some public discussion on advertising law. Uh, and so I started doing that um, and, you know, blogging the new cases that I found. Um, and I found I really liked it. And I also found that it was extraordinarily helpful for when uh, both giving me ideas for what I should write about next. And also when I started to write, um, I would usually have started articulating my thoughts with respect to, you know, a recent case. And I could pick up on that and sort of and figure out okay, is there a larger thing here? And what do I want to say about it? Yeah. Were, were you already teaching at that point or were you still? Yes. Yeah. Uh, I was at NYU at that point. NYU and then you went to Georgetown and then you went to Harvard, right? Is that? Yep. But yeah. So did you at that point have any debate in your own mind as to whether, you know, you should spend time blogging or spend time in more sort of traditional academic forms of publishing uh, or, or how, right. how did you weigh that equation? So uh, that's a great question. And I re do remember at the time there was a, a, some angst about uh, whether we should, you know, as legal academics, should this count? Will this count? Um, and I have to admit, um, you know, I was in a, a fairly privileged position um, where, you know, um, I, I, I was publishing, I was also publishing a fair amount of traditional scholarship um, and, you know, doing what I thought was good work there. So uh, to me, it was additional. Um, I wouldn't probably ever tell anyone to blog instead of 
publishing traditional scholarship, although mm-hmm. there are a couple of people for whom it really worked, like unquestionably so. Um, but, you know, it kind of wasn't the way to bet. Uh, and things have changed, I think, with Twitter um, becoming such a dominant medium for for uh, academics. But I, I do think it's a way to be at least in part a public intellectual. So I was always prepared to defend it on, on the merits. That being said, like, I don't, um, you know, I, I don't think I neglected my traditional scholarship to do it. Yeah, I mean, there has been this, you know, there's been talk over a couple, probably more recently, a lot more recently than from when you started blogging. But this idea that, you know, that the sort of the traditional law review is is uh, uh, an anachronism uh, whose time is long past and that and that blogging is perhaps a superior form even of of academic uh, or scholarly publishing. What do you think about that? So uh, I guess I think uh, you know both the positions are are, prob- are pretty reductive, right? So uh, my question is, is it good work? Um, and if the work is good, then I want to read it in a law review and I want to read it in a blog post. And and also there are just different things of uh, different links. So there are kinds of arguments that are simply not fit for a blog post because they're long and they're involved and that's fine. Um, and in fact, you know, when I do an amicus brief, I post the amicus brief uh, um, and I usually don't even really do much to summarize it because usually there's actually a, an argument that's longer than you would want to fit in a blog post. So uh, I, uh, I, j- I think having a, an academic community that has people in it who do outreach to working lawyers um, and to the general public is really important. It is not particularly important that any one person do any of these things. Uh, and so I'm never going to tell anyone uh, this is how you should you know, connect to the public. Mm-hmm. So uh, if you started, you kind of started more seriously, uh, what, 15 years ago uh, with a regular routine of it. How how has that routine remained the same or changed over over the years? Um, so I th- I think uh, I've tried to sort of keep the focus as much as possible on um, the stuff that I know other people aren't going to cover, although actually that's changed too. So there's much more coverage of advertising law than there was when I started out. So that's uh, that's yeah, there are other blogs, ask. certainly other blogs out there covering it, but but more from a, uh, the uh, a corporate point of view, I think. Right. So uh, so one thing that um, I hope I never change is, you know, I'm going to tell you what I think. Uh, and yeah. uh, uh, there's going to be commentary in here uh, about things that I think are particularly well reasoned or perhaps particularly badly reasoned. Um, the uh, I have uh, uh, I'm not super consistent about this, but uh, I am trying to keep an eye about not putting the full name of someone who's sort of dragged into something. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so you know, with the visibility that you have. Uh, I, I probably am mostly just going to use a last name um, unless it's really important to know exactly what's going on. Um, and, uh, you know, I, 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 I understand why if you're just sort of accidentally in, in a case. And I also started blogging the conferences I attended. Unfortunately, 
that has not happened very much in the past year, but hopefully uh-huh. uh, we'll be back to that soon. Um, and I enjoy that, but uh, I'm also trying to uh, be uh, be mindful of the difference between sort of stuff that's, uh, you know, uh, presented in a limited group of people versus stuff that you're presenting to a community. Yeah. yeah. How, how does the blogging relate to uh your your teaching and and other scholarship uh you're you're following cases on your blog i I assume that must play into uh all the other work that you're doing yeah so uh you know i it it does keep me up to date which is very important and it means uh that when for example you know eric goldman and i have a case book on advertising law um and online uh, published online, right? Uh, moderately priced, um, <laughs> if I do say so myself. Um, I mean, it's 15 bucks, so <laughs> uh, I actually think that is a fair price for the work. That's that a deal. Yep. Um, and uh, we, uh, so, so, you know, when I go to update it, right, I have a really ready access to what's new and, and whether it's significant. And, you know, most of the time, uh, I won't put a new case in, but if a new case is interesting, and especially if it sort of teaches something, um, you know, in a different way than what's gone before, um, you know, I might well swap it in. Uh, and likewise, I think, uh, as I mentioned, you know, if I've been tracking a development for a while, if I go back and I look, I've r- written something, sometimes I'll find, oh, I've said the same thing four times for these four different cases. Uh, you know, maybe it's time to look for an amicus opportunity or uh, to write something. So, so we talked about the uh, the career implications of of uh, scholarly writing for an academic such as yourself. What do you think has been the impact of on your career of of having it blog? Uh, has it been neutral or positive or negative? So, uh. Probably positive. Um, I mean, uh, I have never been. Let's uh, let's put it nicely. I've never been particularly socially sensitive, um, and so uh, I've you know I just write down pretty much what I think. Um, I'm sure that that has also uh, hampered me in some ways, but um, overall it's been a real positive. And fortunately. Uh, as, as an academic, um, the norms of scholarly freedom do let me say what I think. Um, and, uh, you know, I only work with the clients that I really believe in. Um, and so uh, I, I get to s- stick with my commitments and, and that's been good. So I think um, I, I would say two things. I think constantly writing is actually really good for you as a scholar. It keeps you limber. And so doing that, it, um, it just sort of keeps me in practice. Uh, and then being exactly who I am uh, has been ha- has been liberating and and accustomed me to uh, trying to figure out what I really think and be and trying to be honest if my views change. Sometimes they do, right? Uh, sometimes the matter uh, no longer appears to to me as it appears to have appeared to me then. As, right. as Justice Souter would say, yeah, we we do we do grow and evolve. Have have there been uh, times when those opinions that you've expressed on your blog have uh, caused a, a reaction or a backlash that surprised you? I mean, so I should say, like, it's not at all clear to me that I would hear people 
um, complaining about it uh, uh, for, for, for various reasons. Uh, I suppose the one thing uh, uh, that surprised me early on was I had actually written an article about um, the gender implications of various fair use decisions. Uh, and uh, when I, I blogged about it, uh, I got a little bit of, of backlash, like, you know, uh, uh, you shouldn't say that fair use uh, shows gender bias because, um, you know, fair use is under attack and we need to preserve it. And, um, you know, my position was always, uh, yeah, uh, fair use is really important and we need to preserve and strengthen it. And one way we can strengthen it is by making it equitable. Um, but that was really relatively tiny. Mm -hmm. uh, the other kind of funny thing that happened, prefiguring stuff that is actually much more significant today, is when I first started out. So Palm Wonderful uh, is a very interesting company uh, and quite litigious. Uh, yeah. And sometimes I think uh, their lawsuits are good. And sometimes I think their lawsuits are bad. Uh, but uh, I, I was blogging about um, one of their uh, uh early lawsuits and their social media uh, people reached out and wanted to give me a free case of Palm Wonderful um, <laughs> because, you know, this was sort of early influencer marketing. And right. uh, I, I want to be super clear. They did not actually, they did not ask for anything, right? Um, right. They, they, they were not trying to influence me in any way. Um, but I, I'd never heard of such a thing. This was years before in, you know, Instagram, this was, uh, you know, it, in, 2007 maybe uh and uh I, I i sort of it sent me back and i thought about it and i thought you know no i'm gonna say no uh because uh, i'm just worried about accepting this but that was probably the most surprising thing that that's funny it, it, you actually just wrote uh recently about an influencer uh payments case uh involving uh uh a, a vibrator, <laughs> a vibrator manufacturer and the owner of a sex boutique who is apparently an Instagram influencer. Uh, you know, I mean, that's that's actually very relevant to to blogs, because I think a lot of a lot of bloggers probably aren't really aware of the rules around what they can and cannot do or should or should not do, I guess, uh, with regard to that. I mean, they're, they're, the the uh, companies themselves have obligations, but those right. who are posting the content have obligations. Right. What, are, what can you can you kind of summarize what those what those obligations are? Yeah, so um, they are, as you mentioned, much more hev heavily on the advertiser. So for basically agency purposes, um, the speech that the blogger makes on behalf of the company as a paid agent for the company is going to be attributed to the company. So if the blogger makes statements that the advertiser couldn't substantiate, factual statements, um, then the advertiser could get in trouble. The other part of this is disclosure. Um, the FTC and, in fact, regulators worldwide think that there should be disclosure of a relationship when the existence of the relationship would be material to consumers, um, which um, uh, the regulators think, and I think they're right about this, uh, happens in a lot of circumstances. Even when you're just offering uh, pure opinions, that uh, people still want to know if you're being paid to say, oh, you know, I think this is super cute. Um, and uh, to my knowledge, this isn't a huge problem for um, 
for uh, for legal bloggers, um, but it's definitely a topic of huge regulatory interest um, and activism. And you know, every day I get a new alert about some regulator somewhere in the world who's who has uh, put out influencer specific guidelines, even mm-hmm. though these are super standard you know, advertising law principles, we just have a new situation and not for nothing, a whole bunch of people who are suddenly subject to this old regulation just because the technology has changed in in terms of distributing messages. Right. Well, probably not all that applicable to legal bloggers, but had had you taken that uh, case of Palm Wonderful and then were subsequently writing about Palm Wonderful, would you need to disclose that in some way or only if they were a commercial... uh... So, uh, you know, I think this is a fascinating question. Um, so because they didn't ask for anything, uh, so I think it, the answer is, you know, if I were blogging about the the Palm Wonderful product, uh, I think, yes, I would definitely have to disclose that, uh, that I got it for free. Um, to the extent that uh, I just blogged about a new Palm Wonderful case, I don't think so. Um, because uh, you know, there were no conditions uh, and, you know, we didn't have an ongoing relationship. But I, I feel like, yes, it would be a good idea. Right. Yeah. Uh, and uh, what, sometimes it's a good idea to disclose even more limited connections. You know, I tend to try and say uh, if, for example, uh, I've actually used a product. Right. Uh, that just happens to be involved, um, even though I, you know, I don't get sent products or anything like that. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, uh, yeah, we, we're not going to find you on, on Instagram, uh, endorsing products uh, anytime soon. uh, Um, it it seems to me from, from reviewing your blog that you are, uh, quite regular and prolific about posting to your blog. Do you have a routine around it? How do you, how do you keep up with it all? Um, I have a West Clip search for false advertising, and every day I go through it, um, and I discard most of the cases. Um, so I'm I try to limit uh, this to where there's at least one reasonably interesting point of law, or uh, or one where there's like a split of authority, and then I'm just going to sort of add to the public record of uh, of the cases. Uh, and I know I can be uh, super wordy, so. Uh, I, I'm making a little bit of an effort to to summarize more, but I know it's not great because I actually love all the details. Like one of the things that I love most about advertising law is that to do it well, you have to know the the client's business, right? And and understand what matters to the consumers and and understand the context of the purchasing decision. And I just love that that uh, you know the your 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 the law and the facts are so completely intertwined. So. I always like the the weird little details of a case. Uh, but so you're looking for some element of, of, of uniqueness or, or, or something that makes the case stand out from right. uh, uh, those that are more routine, perhaps. Right. And then, you know, I also blog the uh, uh, copyright and, and trademark issues, uh, again, uh, trying to do basically the same principle um, uh, and certainly much more spottily. Uh, but because these are often alleged uh, in in the same case, you know, I end up with a fair number of them. Yeah. Are, are you, um, do you blog uh, about your own 
work at all? I mean, for you know, I know we were talking before we started recording about the fact that you've been uh, involved in uh, uh, the Senate's uh, review this year of the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, which is what, 22 years old, I think, this year. Uh, and there's kind of a, a look look at uh, whether there needs to be changes, and, and you've you've testified uh, and spoken on that. Is that is that something you you blog about as well? So uh, this is another one of those things. So I try and post links to my testimony to it often if it you know, often it's just going to be longer than i think a blog post should be but i'm just going to put up a pdf right and yeah. um and probably not say too much more about it yeah is there a nutshell ver a nutshell version of your text testimony on that this year i mean where where do you stand on on, on dmca reform um, so, right. So the nutshell version is um, this is one of these things where, like democracy, it's pretty much the worst thing uh, except for all the other things that have been tried. Uh, <laughs> so uh, I I don't think that uh, Section 512, uh, which is the safe harbor provisions for Internet service providers, um, is in need of reform. And I, I think that a lot of the things being floated for this are actually uh, what what the people who uh, are proposing them really want is to hurt Google and Facebook. Um, and uh, frankly, I, I understand that impulse and I'm not entirely opposed to it. Uh, in fact, maybe I'm in su uh, support of it. But the problem is uh, with doing this through copyright reform is that Google and Facebook are going to survive anything that you throw at them. And what you will do by changing copyright law instead of working with antitrust law uh, is ensure that nobody else will ever be able to challenge Google and Facebook. So um, I think the safe harbors are actually super important for challengers, uh, challengers, small market entrants. Um, and um, the the stuff that we hear about, you know, the massive online infringement problem, like it's just got the wrong target. Yes, there are pirate sites. They're already violating the DMCA. They can already be shut down um, and like making them super duper illegal, like double plus illegal um, when they're already illegal is not actually going to do anything. Google and Facebook are already implementing strong screening mechanisms. And although c content owners have disputes about that, um, about how good they are, uh, telling like passing a law won't make them technically better. Uh, right. right. So it's the and, smaller it's the smaller companies that are going to get hurt by. Yes. Right. So uh, you know it's it's a big set of issues, but uh, I, I'm actually heartened by the antitrust complaints that we've seen uh, because those seem to me to be targeting the right aspects of behavior rather than trying to uh, to to mess with copyright law to do so. Yeah. Um, on your blog, do, do you have uh, a thought in your mind about who your readers are, who your audience is, uh, whether whether you actually know it or not? Uh, who do you think you're writing for? <laughs> that is a, a great question. And I occasionally think about it because um, I, at this point, I think I am mostly writing for a lawyer who already has some basic knowledge. Um, you know, it depends on the area, but often, you know, I don't want to tell you about the basics of the idea expression distinction, um, or uh, I'm, I'm going to assume that, that, that you know, um, you know, the reasonable person standard. Um, although sometimes that's important just to give a good summary of like what the court is doing to the extent that it's relying on a particular conception of the reasonable consumer. But um, I do uh, I, I, I do use a fair number of concepts without you know, backing up and explaining them. And I think at this point, I'm comfortable with that. 
Right. But so you're, not writing, you're not writing you're not writing down in. to an audience necessarily. You're you're writing yeah. to an audience that has some degree of, of yeah. knowledge, maybe even sophistication around this area. Exactly. Yeah. And do you get feedback at all from readers? Or are you engaging with readers in any way whatsoever? Or you any, know, even on Twitter or anything? Or every once in a while, which is great. I uh, I love I always love hearing it. And you know, I'm perfectly happy uh, if someone, you know, just skims the headlines and, you know, reads the occasional one that seems relevant to their interests. That's great. Uh, 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 it's wonderful. Um, I would say most of the feedback I get comes from people sending me stuff uh, saying this looks like it's, you know, one of yours. You, you ought to write about this or? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Good. Um, you're you're somewhat unique in in the topic that you you, you write about. But do you think it's it, it, do you have any sort of general lessons or advice about blogging that that you think you you've learned about how to how to be successful at blogging, how to how to make a go of it? Um. So, I would say, if you have an internal motivation, that's the best reason to do it. So, um, I'm not saying that I would definitely still be doing it if I knew for sure that no one would be reading. Like there's definitely some external motivation, but for me, it has proven so useful in helping me sort of stay flexible, stay updated, and also sort of start thinking through things and watch them percolate and develop into something that might be a larger project um, that uh, I'm going to keep doing it as long as I continue to get those benefits. Um, and to the extent that anyone else finds it's use, it useful, that's that's wonderful, um, and I love to hear it. But um, if you're just doing it for recognition, that's probably not going to be enough. Right. So uh, it, it, for you, it it fits it fits within everything else you're doing. It helps fuel whatever whatever everything right. else you're doing. It sounds like so. Exactly. Yeah. Good. Well, uh, any any uh, any final words of wisdom before we wrap up here today? You know, I actually think that having a, sh a place to do short form stuff is super important for the profession. Um, and I think a lot of the law professor blog networks um, have done an incredibly valuable service. So if you look at like the business law professors um, and that's where, you know, uh, an individual contributor might really not have enough to sustain an audience, but um, you can get a critical mass. And I, I think that retains significance, even as we seem to be shifting more towards Twitter. I th it's really useful to have those sort of short and medium form spaces for us to engage in. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, well, Rebecca Tishnet, I really appreciate your taking the time to uh, discuss blogging with us here today. Thank you very much. And uh, listeners can find the blog at Tushnet, T-U-S-H-N-E-T dot blogspot dot com. Rebecca Tushnet's 43 blog or 43B log, depending on how you want to say it. Uh, and uh, Rebecca, stay well. And I hope you're uh, able to get back up to uh, the Cambridge area sometime soon. Me too. Thanks a lot. All right. See thank ya. you. Bye. That does it for today's show. Uh, this is Bob Ambrosi. We will be back again next week with another episode of This Week in Blogging. Thanks for This Week in Legal Blogging. Thanks for, thanks for listening.